Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. Right now it is early in the morning on April 29th, except for Truthvids, who is here once again, and it's a little later in the day for him. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We have Truthvids here with us once again to help us address Charles Weissman's What About the Seed Line Doctrine? And this is actually part 12 of our presentation, and it's subtitled Children of the Devil. Hello, Truthvids. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, so we're once again talking about Cain's ancestry. Uh, from the devil or the serpent and in turn the Jews being from Cain and this is certainly one of those areas where we just come to expect Judeo-Christian pastors to dodge it and come up with ridiculous arguments and explanations to weasel their way around it and now Wiseman allegedly a CI pastor is doing the exact that exact same thing and he's going to do it as we're going to talk about it throughout this this well, um podcast right exactly he's no better than a judeo-christian pastor who, who just um wants to twist definitions of words into um ways that obviously the people around christ didn't interpret them when he spoke them but they'd rather twist those definitions and use these um gnostic methods of interpretation in in order to escape the truth or to try to suppress the truth. In our last presentation from Weissman's book, where we are still in chapter four, and we will be evidently for a while, the role of Cain, under the subtitle, Of Your Father the Devil, that's where we are in Weissman's book, we actually only presented one paragraph from the bottom of page 31 last week. And there Weissman claimed that Christ, in his discourse with his adversaries, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, verses 41 through 44, did not mean father, where he said father, but was instead using the word metaphorically. However, the answers which John attributed to the Jews themselves revealed that they understood Christ to have been speaking plainly and literally. And the words of Christ in the surrounding dialogue also demonstrate that he was speaking plainly and literally, where he was clearly referring to the origin of his adversaries and not merely to what they believed. I didn't see him make any appeal to his adversaries to have faith, right, or to be converted. He told them that they would not be converted in John chapter 10, where, where he said, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. He didn't expect them to believe him. He was confronting them with truth, knowing they wouldn't believe him. Otherwise, his own prophecy and, and as it's written in Moses and the prophets, that he would be crucified would have never happened if they'd have believed him. He knew they wouldn't. 
And he knew they wouldn't believe him because they were not his sheep. He didn't say that if you don't believe me, you're not my sheep. He said, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. And there's, there's a huge difference there. So we had a necessary and long digression to explain the origin of such allegorical interpretations of the plain words of scripture that they are found in early Greek philosophy and in Gnosticism, and that early church fathers were following the philosophers and Gnostics in their own interpretations of scripture, in spite of the plain meanings of the words and the clear intent of the speakers, Christ and his apostles. So it's Weissman who's the Gnostic and not we who believe in this two-seed-line message. At the end of our last program, we also heard from a friend who has been involved in Christian identity circles for a very long time, perhaps over 40 years. So according to our friend Michael, as we heard towards the end of our presentation last week, Charles Weissman did indeed admit to having some Jewish ancestry in a quip which he had made at a dinner party 20 years, over 20 years ago. And the Christian identity pastors and teachers and their wives in the circles in which he traveled had chosen to cover it up because they were impressed with his supposed learning. But here we have proven that if Weissman was indeed learned, he consciously chose to spread lies instead of the truth. I don't know if you have any um, comments to make on, on what Michael had said. Yeah, absolutely. That was fascinating hearing about, you know, his character and what it was like, you know, people have actually met him firsthand. And I do recall there was somebody on the forums who had also met him, not, not necessarily went up and spoke to him, but they'd been to one of his conferences and they said the exact same thing. He wasn't very approachable. He didn't speak to people. He just went up, did his presentation, and that's it. And, you know, you know, that's fine. Not everybody's naturally, you know, a good person-to-person -person speaker. Some people, they're just good at doing what they do, and, and maybe they're not a people's person. But when you hear about him talking about stocks and bonds and, you know, where to make investments and stuff like that, you really think, what, what was this all for? You know, that's not something you'd expect when Christian identity people meet up to have fellowship. It's certainly not something you'd expect at all. Well, well, right. That is what you would hear at a Baptist church gathering, that they're socialites, that they join churches so that they could promote their own businesses and, and work the crowd and, and be accepted because they all believe Jesus the same way. They've all been baptized in the same river. And, and, and they gain that acceptance by showing up in church every Sunday and, and they sell insurance or they sell stocks or, or shoes or whatever. That's what they're really there for. It, it's incredible that this is no different that, than a, um, a, a social club where people trade investment tips. And, and that was Christian identity that these people are still all around. Most of them, I, I mean, Weissman's dead, but. Dave Barley and, and Ted Wyland and Stephen Jones and Jory Brooks and James Brueggemann and 
as far as I know, all of their wives are still alive. And, and so these people um, that Michael saw back in the late 1980s and early, um, earlier in this century, they're still there. They're still there and they're still doing those same things. It, it's incredible to me. They just don't have Charles Weissman anymore. He was kind of, um, he, he would be well over 80 years old if he was alive today. And, and he only passed away, I think, in 2016 when he was about 80 years old. So none of them are going to live forever. Not even us, but that's the way it is. So these people have been around a long time and they still are. So they have an opportunity to hear what we're saying about them. And, and I pray they do because they need to repent. But somehow I don't think they will, even if they did hear this. Christianity isn't supposed to be about investing in stocks and it's not supposed to be about accepting Jews and identity Christians should know better that, that if someone has um, admitted to have any degree of Jewish blood, that that should right there disqualify them as a Christian teacher. They can't, that they, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They can't be our teachers. That's been the problem with the Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years, is taking these converso Jews who claim to believe in Jesus and, and promoting them to the level of bishop and, and reading their Bible commentaries. <laughs> and their Bible commentaries always seem to be the most popular. And that's an 800-year-old problem. That's not, that's not just from the 50s. From the 1950s, so that's incredible. And and I'm sorry, this is a um, a long digression. This makes perfect sense to us, as Charles Weissman, out of one side of his mouth, denies to seed line, and has actually fabricated many lies in this book in order to somehow disprove it. And and this is our. Um, 12th podcast, I believe, in, in this series. So we've all already demonstrated many of those lies, I believe, or elucidated them. But out of the other side of his mouth, he also shows a thorough understanding of, of our point of view and interpretation of scriptures, at least as it was taught in the past, in the Compare and Swift days. And he actually also agrees to or admits to the truth of many aspects of it. For example, Weissman admitted that the serpent was an intelligent being, a person who had his own order in the world, which was contrary to the order of God. But at the same time, he neglected to consider the consequences of his admission or offer any further elaboration. If you believe the serpent was an intelligent being, you should be able to explain how that serpent got into the garden of God in Genesis chapter 3. Where'd it come from? And Weissman refused to do that. He just neglected to do it. And evidently, nobody reading his book ever challenged him on that while he was alive. I don't know. In that and many of his other arguments, Weissman was clearly double-minded. We do not have to accept the mouth of one witness, which is our friend Michael. But Michael has only 
corroborated Weissman's many testimonies against himself. What Michael's the I, I see Michael as the second witness here. Weissman himself is the first witness, so Michael must be true. That's the way I'm looking at this. Now we shall continue with Weissman's book, endeavoring to address all of the important protests he offers against to seed line, which he offers in this chapter. So we're going to start from where we last left off on page 32. There Weissman said, and I'll read one paragraph, Jesus implied that these Jews did not have God as their father because they did not follow the ways of God, but followed lies and false doctrine. They instead had as their father or leader, the devil, a term used for the antithesis of God. If they were followers of truth and righteousness and God's laws, then it could be said that God Almighty was their father, for God is the founder of these things. God wanted his people to call him father because that meant they recognized God as their head, leader, or founder. Wow. Did Luke write in chapter 3 that Adam is the son of God? But Adam sinned. And he went off in, in, into punishment for his sin, but he was still the son of God. I mean, he was never called the son of the devil. So, so this is also a lie. And, and this is a significant lie because it insinuates that anyone can become a child of the devil who sins. Or anyone can become a child of God for not sinning. Anyone can be a devil by following the wrong doctrine or not be a devil by following good doctrine. So today you might be a child of the devil because you saw a pretty girl and lusted after her, not knowing she was married. But tomorrow you might refrain from lust and control your desires and voila, once again, you are a child of God. Today, you may be a devil if you go to a Pentecostal church, but next weekend, you might be an angel if you go to some church which Charles Weissman prefers, or perhaps to some synagogue that Charles Weissman prefers. So, if this is true, why did the Apostle John write in chapter 2 of his first epistle, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He didn't say, if any man sin, he is a devil. He didn't say that. Weissman thinks John said that in the next chapter. But John is not contradicting himself. And John cannot be, you cannot force an interpretation of any scripture in a manner where the writer is contradicting himself. If your interpretation makes the author of the epistle or the gospel contradict himself, then your interpretation must be called into question. 
And, and that should be pretty clear. I mean, that's only common sense. You can't force the apostles of Christ to be hypocrites contradicting themselves with your interpretation. Continuing with 1 John chapter 2, and he, meaning Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. If Christ is a propitiation for our sins, what sin makes us children of the devil if our sin is already propitiated? And why, or forgiven, if you will, and why were the children of Israel, who were never obedient to God, still considered children of God throughout all the books of the prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, um, and Amos, throughout all the books of the prophets, Jeremiah, all of them, the children of Israel are still considered children of God, even though they were put off in punishment and divorce. Yahweh put the children of Israel off in divorce and punishment, so we read in Amos chapter 3, hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. The interpretation is upheld in Jeremiah, in, in Jeremiah 31, in, in I, I, Jeremiah chapter 31, um, Jeremiah chapter 44 or, or chapter 46, I'm sorry, where Yahweh said, for I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but will correct thee in measure. The children of Israel continued to be his children, even though they were put off in punishment. And by the time Jeremiah wrote that, they had been put off in punishment for a long time. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? In other words, what Son, have you ever had whom at one time or another you did not have to spank or, or reproach or, or admonish for some reason? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Chastisement is punishment for wrongdoing, which results in correction. Yahweh chastised Cain by refusing his sacrifice and told him that if he could not do well, sin lieth at the door, that it was because he was a bastard and not a son. Cain proved Yahweh was correct when he didn't endure the chastisement, but instead 
he immediately went out and killed his brother Abel. And that is a lesson when, that we must all derive from the scriptures. That's exactly what Paul's saying there. Cain didn't endure the chastisement. He went out and killed his brother. He didn't learn anything from the chastisement. It's a lesson we must all derive from the scriptures because it is one of the most critical lessons of the scriptures. Charles Weissman sought to hide it from men. The children of yeah, Israel... Yeah, it's funny that um, for the bastards, they tend to do much better in life when they sin. Like when a, shoot, when a Jew steals money from us, you know, cleverly through banking and usury, you know, essentially sinning, they come out a lot better then, you know, they're clearly not punished. It's right. clear that they are bastards. Exactly. And, and I mean, we can enjoy the, the, the rewards of the world when we take the side of the Jew and go along with everything. Eventually, some Jew is going to screw us. It, it's always going to happen. But we, per, we never perceive it that way when we're, when, when we're joined to the world. And we want to do good in the world by worldly means, and, and we go to Christian identity conferences and we talk about stock investments, and we appear to do good. And all these men to this day, Jory Brooks, Stephen Jones, Ted Weiland, James Brueggemann, they wear three-piece suits, they get up and give these, um, that these speeches or sermons or whatever you want to call them and and that they're very worldly and and they look good and they look that, that even if they're not wealthy they have the appearance of being successful that's the way they want to make themselves look if i go anywhere it's in a t-shirt and jeans i don't care what people think of that i look i might wear a button-down shirt to speak at the fellowship of god's covenant people or something like that but I'll never wear a suit. I'll never wear a suit and tie. I'll never wear the uniform of, of corporate Wall Street. Not, not again. I mean, I did that back in the 80s and 90s, but not again. I'm done with the world. I'm done with that. That, that's, um, that that's, you, you might appear to be doing good, but are you doing the right thing? Are you really storing up treasure in heaven? And they're not. They can't be because they're misleading men. They're deceiving men with, with usually their... they try and sell memberships. Right. So... All, all sorts of devices to, to rope people in and, and make money. The children of Israel were put off in punishment to be chastised for their sins. They were not following the right way, as Weissman claims. They were not being obedient in following God's way or following his law as Weissman claims, yet they were still considered the children of God. So we read in Isaiah chapter 43, which is a prophecy of what would happen to all the Israelites who had just been taken into Assyrian captivity, which was most of Israel and most of Judah as well. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed now, that's not metaphorical or allegorical. He's talking about their literal descendants. For I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. 
even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. I have made him. Who did Yahweh form? He formed Jacob. And, and he says explicitly in Isaiah that he formed Jacob. In chapter 44, one chapter later, Thus saith Yahweh that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. That's in the same context of Isaiah 43 and, and also Isaiah 45, which we're about to cite in the same context. It's all the same, so we can't imagine this to be anything spiritual, allegorical metaphorical. The children of Israel were put off in captivity. They were still considered the sons and daughters of God in spite of all the sins and, and all of their um, bow worship and giving their children to Moloch and their fornication and their adultery and all the other sins they committed that led them to be put off in captivity. They were still the sons and daughters of God. They were always considered his children, even though they were being punished for all those things. Charles Weissman is so full of shit. He is so much lying. It is so plain that he is a liar. Keep yeah, not bad. And, and that's the theme throughout the whole Bible, right? Constantly he's sending judges, uh, prophets to try and correct us all the time. And then eventually right. he has to come down himself. To right. correct us once and for all with the gospel. And that's exactly why Paul of Tarsus had taught over and over again in his epistles that faith, that, that the salvation is by faith and salvation is by the faith of Abraham. It's not what you believe in Romans chapter four. It's what Abraham believed that his seed through Jacob Israel would inherit the world and would all be saved. That's what Abraham believed. That's the faith of Abraham. It's not the degree of faith like Abraham that we should have. It's the same belief Abraham had that we should have. That's the faith of Abraham. The churches have it all wrong. It's not the faith like Abraham. It's the faith of Abraham. It's not faith like Abraham. You don't have to believe in something different than Abraham and think you're going to be saved. That ain't going to happen. But that's what they teach niggers. And this is what Charles Weissman is saying in reference to Jews, basically. Oh, they're not literal devils. They could believe too. Well, Christ said they can't believe. But these children of Israel did not follow God's ways. And throughout the scriptures, and like you said, that's the entire theme of scripture. They did not follow his ways, but he keeps chastising them to bring them back. And here, he's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back in Christ, because Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Charles Weissman is a liar. He's lying about the entire Bible. And he's purposely ignoring these facts that the children of Israel were always considered the children of God even though they never obeyed him. They've never obeyed him. They don't obey him today. They might call themselves Christians, but they don't obey God. 
Instead, they call themselves Christians and they worship Jews and niggers. <sighs> Keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yet I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. In other words, they saw, but they refused to see, and they heard, but they refused to listen. They had the ability to see and hear, but they had always refused to do so. For that, they were punished. However, regardless of how much they had sinned, they were not devils. Instead, they remained children of God, as we see right here in Isaiah. And likewise, we read in Isaiah chapter 45, Woe to him that strives with his maker. Was that ever said about Cain? No. Did Christ say that to his adversaries in Jerusalem? No. Woe unto him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. A potsherd is a piece of um, shattered clay that was actually used to write short messages on and pass around or send to someone that because they were useless for anything else. They were also used by children to practice their alphabets and their writing. Shall the clay say to him that fashions it, what makest thou or thy work? He has no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, and Israel's maker, Ask me of things to come, concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. So we see that the children of Israel were children of God, even in their state of sin and apostasy. They were never called children of the devil, regardless of how much they had sinned. And many of those sins were quite grievous. I mean, it's, it's pretty bad to sacrifice your child to Moloch or to go to an abortion clinic. But although we have answered all of this folly to demonstrate all of this, we have answered all of this to demonstrate the folly of Weissman's argument. We must also remember that his argument was wrong even before he presented it. Because in the first place, Christ in John chapter 8 was not telling these men that their father was the devil, the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, as Weissman insinuated. Rather, Christ was telling them that their father was Cain, who was a devil, as Cain is the only one who could be referred to here as a murderer from the beginning. So Weissman should have explained how these men were not the children of Cain or followers of Cain. And he offered a straw man argument instead. So continuing with Weissman, Jesus also said that these Jews in John 8 were not Abraham's children. Here again, Jesus employs a metaphor in the use of children. They were not the children of Abraham because they didn't follow the ways of Abraham. And Jesus never said that. He never said you were not Abraham's children. 
even though he infers that they're not his children, so he didn't say it directly, Weissman now quotes the gospel. As Jesus explains, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Citing John chapter 8, verses 39 through 40. And, and Weissman is essentially oversimplifying this. He's oversimplifying these words of Christ so that he could argue that they don't really mean what they say. Weissman insists that the use of the word children here is a metaphor, but he omits the part where Christ had acknowledged that they had descended from Abraham, where he said, I know that you are Abraham's seed. In Romans chapter 4, Paul of Tarsus, speaking of Abraham, said, to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, because all the seed of Israel was promised salvation by God. Bringing the gospel of God to the lost sheep of the house of Israel was Paul's entire purpose. And even James wrote his single surviving epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. They were all considered children of God by Isaiah, as we have shown, and also by the Apostle John, where he wrote in chapter 11 of his gospel that Christ had died not for that nation only, meaning the Israelites in Judea, but that he should also gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. That is the very gathering which is prophesied in Isaiah. But all of those 12 tribes scattered abroad were pagan and were living in sin. So once again, it is proven that Weissman lied where he said if they were followers of truth and righteousness and God's laws, then it could be said that God Almighty was their father. Because in the scriptures, the word of Yahweh always considered him to be the father of the children of Israel, whether or not they kept his laws or followed after his truth. If they were obedient children, they would never have been punished in the first place. In their punishment, they would learn to be obedient children, but they were never the children of devils. And the children of devils have no invitation to return to God. They were never gods in the first place. Yeah, and as you said, they never, he never said, here's the Ten Commandments and tried to convert them. It's pretty clear, exterminate all the Canaanites. And here again, Christ had no intention of converting them. Absolutely it's all throughout not. scripture, two different races. Absolutely. Why didn't he ever say convert the Canaanites? Convert them. See if they'll follow my ways. See if they could become children of God. He never said that. In fact, that's one of the things that the children of Israel were punished for, for not killing them, and for rather following after them in their idolatry. But they were still children of Israel. The Canaanites had no opportunity for reconciliation with God ever. In fact, in one of the last passages in the prophet Zechariah, in that day, some future day, there will no more be the Canaanite in the house of the Lord. Zechariah 
was a thousand years. He was writing a thousand years after Moses. He was writing as the temple was being rebuilt from 520 to 516 BC. A thousand years, almost a thousand years after Moses, 950 to be a little more precise. <laughs> but just as Yahweh told the children of Israel to kill all the Canaanites in the times of Moses and Joshua, and they failed, in Zechariah, Yahweh himself is, gonna, is promising that he will get rid of them, even though the children of Israel failed. Christ himself proves that salvation is not about mere belief where he says in Matthew chapter 7 that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Now, how do those people not believe in Jesus doing all that? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity clearly wolves in sheep's clothing. One of his own apostles, Judas Iscariot, was called a devil. Even though Judas had been with him for a long time, at least two years when he was called a devil, and no sin could be attributed to Judas before that time when he was called a devil. So the entire Bible proves Charles Weissman to be a liar. Judas had to be a devil for some other reason, because he was following Christ for over two years when Christ called him a devil. The literal truth, as we have explained, is that the Jews were the seed of Abraham, as Christ had acknowledged, but they did not conduct themselves as children of Abraham because they were not children of Abraham in the sense that they were bastards being descended from Esau and not from Jacob. You could claim to be Abraham's seed, and it would have to be acknowledged, but you're only Abraham's seed in part. For that reason, Paul had contrasted Jacob and Esau in reference to the people of Judea in Romans chapter 9 where he said, not all of those in Israel are of Israel. And he went on to compare Jacob and Esau. And Christ warned of them who say they are Judeans and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan in chapters two and three of the Revelation. He didn't say that they claim to be Judeans and are not, but they're really Egyptians or they're really Syrians, <laughs> or they're really um, Greeks or Romans in disguise. That's not what he said. He said they're the synagogue of Satan in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation. So in John chapter 8, if the literal meaning of the words of Christ are upheld, not only by the context, but also by the records of Scripture and history, then the literal meaning must be what Christ had intended. The metaphorical meaning suggested by Weissman cannot be upheld at all. Where did even the Israelites ever do what Abraham had done? Where were they ever students of Abraham? As Paul also said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So why did Christ 
not say to his apostles if they were all sinners, because all men are sinners. And during the ministry of Christ, their sins were not yet forgiven because he hadn't yet died on a cross to forgive their sins. So during his ministry, why didn't he say to his apostles, I have chosen you 12, and 12 of you are devils, if all men sin. If all men sin, how did Christ, as it is recorded in John chapter 1, speak about Nathanael and exclaim, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. If there's no guile in Nathanael, he can't be a serpent. <laughs> the serpent was the most cunning of every beast in the field. And Judas was a devil before he ever sinned. But the rest of the apostles were never devils, even though yeah, um, all men sin. I'm sorry. Yeah, even spending, what, two or three years with Christ, Judas's nature still come to the forefront. He still right. couldn't resist selling uh, you know, the whereabouts of Christ for money. And Christ knew about it, and Christ knew his nature. In fact, that was at the end of John chapter 6. And I believe it was earlier in, in um, what is, I'm looking for it real quick. I believe it was earlier than that, that Christ, that the apostles marveled because Christ knew what was in men, that, that he needed no testimony about any man because Christ knew what was in men. He knew just by looking at them somehow, whether they were good or evil. He knew just by looking at them because he's the shepherd of the sheep and the shepherd knows his sheep, as he explained in John chapter 10. He knew by looking at, his, at people, which of them were his sheep and which of them were wolves in sheep's clothing or goats in sheep's clothing. Yeah, and just like we said, um, CI pastors, you know, talking about stocks and all that, what was Judas doing? He was the money collector. So there's no surprise there at all. John chapter 2, verse 25. John wrote that. So it's before Christ called Judas a devil. Because, like you said, Christ knew what Judas's origin was and knew what his inherent nature was. Now Weissman makes an assertion which is clearly refuted by history. And he says, the Jews, or more correctly, Judeans, that Jesus was talking to, and that's Weissman's remark, the Jews, or more correctly, Judeans. So he knows, right, that Jesus was talking to in John 8 were true Israelites. They were not hybrids like those called Jews today, and they were not the seed of the serpent or of Cain. Jesus clearly identifies the biological descent of these people when he said, I know that you are Abraham's seed, John 8.37. Your father Abraham rejoiced, rejoiced to see my day, John 8.56. Did not Moses give you meaning the Judeans, give you the law, John 7, 19. Wow. First, Christ made a general statement in John 7, 19, which was not in the same context as his remarks in John 8, 44, or in John chapter 8. So 
it is not proper to lump them together. But while the Judeans did collectively receive the law from Moses, even that does not mean that the Judeans whom Christ had addressed in John chapter 8 were not hybrids, as Weissman calls them. Whether or not all of them were bastards, many of them certainly were bastards. And, and in fact, in Acts chapter 5, and, and I had actually meant to write this into my response yesterday, and, and I sort of forgot, the apostles mentioned the race of the high priests, the race of the high priests as distinct from their own kin. I'm sorry that the, um, the King James Version may not have it as race. It might have it as kindred or family or, or something else. But the word is Ginea, it means race. And even if it was the kindred of the high priest, they're still distinguishing their own people from the high priests. But that's aside the point. Paul of Tarsus said in Romans chapter 9 that not all of those in Israel were of Israel. Then he went on to compare Jacob and Esau. Why would he do that? Why? If some of them were Edomites, then what he's doing makes sense. If they are all Israelites and none of them are hybrids, as Weissman claims, why would Paul make that comparison? Why would he say that the covenants and adoption and, and all of these other things, the law, are for Israel and go on to compare Jacob and Esau? Why would he do that? unless a great number of these people were Edomites. Calling the Israelites vessels of mercy and the Edomites vessels of destruction, Paul cemented the comparison. Weissman claims to be able to read allegory. He can't even read English. Christ himself in the Revelation had twice warned against those who claimed to be Judeans but were not. Flavius Josephus provides in great detail accounts of the forced conversions of the Edomites in Palestine into Judaism by the Maccabees. And this wasn't only one account, it was several, which occurred over a period of about 40 years from the time of John Hyrcanus through the rule of Alexander Janius. All of these things help to prove the truth of the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 35, where Esau is chastised because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there. That's a prophecy of Esau taking over the land of Judah and Israel after the deportations. And they did take not all of it, but a great deal of it, both Judah and Israel, all the way to the coast, all, all the way to the edge of Galilee, the Edomites had inhabited. And they probably would have inhabited more if the Judeans hadn't returned um, 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and inhabited Jerusalem 
and Galilee and, and certain other towns around Jerusalem. They would have absorbed it all eventually if that didn't happen, the Edomites. In the period after the deportations, the Edomites moved into Israel and Jerusalem, and, and I'm sorry, Israel and Judah. And later, in the period of regrowth under the Maccabees, they forcibly converted all of those Edomites to Judaism. And by the time of Christ, the Edomites had taken over control of the kingdom under the Herods because the Herods were in collusion with Rome as it conquered Judea. From the time of Herod, there was a significant Edomite presence among the priests as well as the people. And Malachi chapters 1 and 2 are a prophecy of what would happen, resulting in a prophecy of the very discourse between Christ and those priests in John chapter 8. And we've already explained that earlier in the series. All of this and more clearly proves that many of the priests and the high priests of the time of Christ certainly were Edomites. They were in part descendants of Abraham. They could claim Abraham as a father for that reason, but they were not really his children because they were bastards. It is easy for Weissman to deny this because it isn't proven in a single citation or sentence, but it certainly is proven. And once again, Weissman is found to be a liar. The now, fact that he mentioned hybrids seems to indicate he really understood this, that there were descendants of Cain in there, but then he just dismisses it completely. And he never elaborates what he means by hybrids. Well, right. So, so he's definitely covering it up here. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point because um, hybrid isn't really a term the scripture uses. Paul of Tarsus uses the term bastards. But that's the only time it appears in the New Testament. It only appears in the Old Testament <laughs> uh, uh, two or three times. Bastard or bastards. It's in Zechariah. It's in Deuteronomy. I don't think it's anywhere else. Perhaps that word mamzer is translated in some other way, but somehow I don't think so. And, and in fact, I'm going to check. Yeah, bastards, Zechariah and Deuteronomy. Bastards is only Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. I mean, bastards aren't the subject of Scripture. The children of Israel are told very plainly not to. Yeah, and he seems them. to indicate that modern Jews are hybrids, but clearly, but then there were no hybrids back then. Well, what the hell is he talking about? Well, well exactly. The, the, um, the word manzer from which the word bastard is translated into English from Hebrew, only appears twice in the Old Testament, in those same passages I mentioned, Zechariah and Deuteronomy, both times in the singular. Now, Weissman will insist that seed is literal in John 8.37, and that father is literal in John 8.56, while claiming that similar passages in related verses in the same context are allegorical, which is pretty incredible to me, proving that he is a double-minded liar, 
Weissman says on page 33 of his book, we're up to page 33 now, there is nothing metaphorical or scriptural in these verses. They are spoken quite literally, meaning these people were the literal descendants of Abraham. No one would ever have called have been called Abraham's seed, who is of a mixed lineage, particularly by Jesus. And where he says that, he's citing Matthew chapter 15, verses 24 to 26, to support that statement. But that is a portion of the account of the encounter of Christ with the Canaanite woman. She never claimed to be the seed of Abraham. So Weissman's citation is invalid. It's nonsense. That woman was described as a Canaanite. The Canaanites aren't the seed of Abraham. She never made that claim to be the seed of Abraham. She couldn't. She was a Canaanite. She wasn't necessarily an Edomite. She is in Tyre and Sidon. This is far to the north of the territory where the Edomites were converted to Judaism. She's not even a Judean by religion, as Mark identifies her as a Greek. And Greek was not a racial or national designation. Greek was a designation of culture. So this woman, by her appearance, was an adherent of the Greek culture and the people in all the areas that Alexander the Great had conquered were indeed acclimated or, or um, had, had appropriated the Greek culture. Even in Josephus, many of the Judeans had appropriated the Greek culture, had become culturally acclimated to the Greek um, mode of dress and living, which was starkly different from the Hebrew. So we even see a lot of um, given names in the New Testament, given names of Israelites that are Greek names because they were culturally acclimated to, to, to um, the Greek mode. So this woman was a Greek by culture and a Canaanite by race. And she had no claim, and she never claimed to be the seed of Abraham. So Weissman it is basically... Um, he made up a dummy argument. It, it's not real. Where in John 8:44, Christ told his adversaries that Cain was their father, although Weissman misread the verse because he didn't admit that Christ or realize that Christ was talking about Cain. He says that there it's allegorical, even though it's to be taken literally. In those other passages, John 8.37 and John 8.56. But where Christ told his adversaries that Abraham was their father, it is literal. That's Weissman's argument. Weissman wants it both ways in one passage of scripture. But Weissman thought Christ said in verse 44 that the devil was their father when he was actually referring to Cain. So perhaps it is also true that Weissman cannot read. The fact is that the Edomite Jews at the time could claim to be the seed of Abraham, even though the Canaanite woman never made the claim and, and it couldn't, she could not have made it.
The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 claimed to be the seed of Jacob, and Christ never told her that she was wrong. He accepted her claim because it was true. Many of the Samaritans were indeed remnant Israelites. So it must have been true that she was the seed of Jacob, and that could be established. The Canaanite woman couldn't say that, and she didn't. But the Edomite Jews at the time of Christ could claim to be the seed of Abraham. And Christ could not deny that because it was literally true. However, being descendants of Esau, as Esau had taken wives of the Canaanites, who were in turn mixed with the Kenites and other races, it is also literally true that they were descendants of Cain. For the same reason that the converted Edomites thought they could enter into the covenants of God. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, Brethren, I speak as befits a man. Even a validated covenant of man no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, meaning Esau or Ishmael or the sons of Keturah, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed, which is Jacob, Israel. The Israelites were the anointed race. And that's a whole nother proof, but I already have done that at Christagenia. I've already shown that from Old Testament and New. I don't know if you have any comments. Um, I, uh, um, you know, Weissman, he's constantly back and forth. He, he tries to be CI, but then not CI. It, it's just crazy when you go through it, that like you actually properly read it and study it. You know, a good speech he did on the podium. Well, well right. It, sounds, it probably sounded great on a podium, but it's all bullshit. <laughs> None of it's true. <laughs> I mean, he sucked in a lot of fools, evidently. He's still sucking in fools, people that would rather talk about and, um, with the um, financial investments. So with the Edomites in um, Judea, a, a, lot, a lot of them could have been, you know, recently race mixed. And by that, I mean, uh, they could still have a father or a mother who was a true Israelite or a grandfather. So, so it'd be like all over the place, right? Absolutely. The Edomites were mixing with the, the Judahites right from the beginning. I mean, even Herod, the Edomite, was able to marry the daughter of, of one of the Maccabee kings. It wasn't Hyrcanus. I think it was Aristobulus, maybe, his brother or, or nephew. Herod married, Herod married his daughter. He was the daughter of the high priest. I, I think it was Aristobulus. Yeah. No. And as no, you just I'm said um, earlier, it, you know, when you go in league with the Jews, it may seem like it's all going great for 10 years, but then eventually they stab you in the back. And that's exactly what happened with him. Mariam was the daughter of Alexander, who was the son of Aristobulus. And Aristobulus was the high priest. And even the high priest, Herod married his daughter, his granddaughter. Are you kidding me? That, that's the degree to which the people of Judea 
in in the um, second century BC and the first century BC had um, must have believed some sort of propaganda that these Edomites were okay. And that's what Malachi prophesied in Malachi chapter one and Malachi chapter two. If the high if if the high priest's daughter is marrying an Edomite, think about how prevalent that same situation must have been among the common population. If I'm not mistaken, Flavius Josephus, who was a priest, one of his daughters married an Edomite, married into the family of Herod. Even Josephus. So how and prevalent then, uh, Herod killed a lot of them, didn't he? Well, well, after um, after marrying the daughter of the high priest, once he became king, he destroyed her entire family because he didn't want any com competition, any competitive claims to the throne. He killed all yeah, it, her, the whole family. It was just a springboard to get him into kingship, and then once he didn't need him anymore, he executed him. Eventually, he killed the children he had with her. I think he may have also killed her. I don't really remember what her end was, but he killed the children he had with her. I would have to go back and, and, and read it because I can't remember explicitly if he killed her or not, but he killed the sons he had with her. He had them killed. Yeah. Alexander said that Herod was not contented to reign in a kingdom that belonged to others and to squandering their mother's government after he had killed her. So he killed his wife. So that that's, uh, I mean, we see the same pattern today all the time. Jewish woman marries a wealthy white man and the guy ends up and dead and she has a big insurance claim. Happens all the time. <laughs> and a a um, Negro marries a, a white woman and three years later, she's in a hospital with broken bones in her face and broken legs. Or needs reconstructive surgery after he pours gasoline on her and lights her on fire. There's all sorts of cases about that. Somebody of another race really cannot love you. They're just using you. And and Herod just used um, Mariam to, to legitimize his own position and, and killed them all in the end. When he had gotten full control, he got to the point where he was comfortable killing them all because he had complete control. He was a first century Yeah, BC and I think that's very Bolshevik. important because we can't know their true nature. They can just put on an act, and that's what Christ is trying to warn us about. Just because they're nice to us, we don't know their true evil nature that they're hiding from us. We project. That, that's our problem. We project our altruism and empathy and our values upon the other races. But they don't even think like us. And like you said, we can't imagine how evil they think. They don't think like we do. And we can't assume that we do. That is our biggest fault as a race. All throughout history, we've imagined that alien races, and, and especially these Jews, think the way we do. And they certainly don't. You have one thing running through your mind, and they, that they've got something totally different running through theirs. The devil walks about seeking whom he may devour. Herod, the so-called great, the Jews call him Herod the Great. They love that. They love calling him that. But he was an Edomite. And Josephus tells us exactly how. 
and tells us four times in his writings that Herod was an Edomite and by blood on both sides of his family, his mother and his father. And the Jews love him and call him Herod the Great. And, and he should have been called Herod the Usurper if, if the Jews really were Israelites that loved their heritage, he would, they would call him Herod the Usurper or Herod the Wicked. He was a first century B.C. Bolshevik. He started out, his father was a, an Edomite who became a military commander under the Maccabees and weaseled his two sons in to um, positions of administration over Jerusalem and Galilee. And Herod was an, an administrator over Galilee, and his brother was the administrator over Jerusalem. But eventually, Herod eliminated his own brother because he wanted no competition. <laughs> he eliminated his brother. He eliminated his, his first wife, Mariam. He eliminated the children he had with her. He eliminated her entire family so that he could seize full control of Judea. And he got that through colluding with the Romans and bribing Mark Antony. He just sounds like Stalin or, you know, one of those evil Bolsheviks, as you right. say. Right. He, he was definitely, he, he was, he was um, Vladimir Lenin all over again. No doubt. Continuing with Weissman on page 33. Another verse wrongly used or interpreted in support of Cain being born of Satan is that of 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, in which John says that we should be not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. It is claimed, Weissman says, it is claimed this verse means Cain was the literal descendant of Satan, the wicked one. Here again, the words are used metaphorically. And I would say, no, they're not. Here, the Greek preposition ek, which denotes source or origin, along with the genitive case of, of the word, the, the phrase, the wicked one, refers to ancestry when it speaks of people in respect to people. Here it is used along with a substantive a substantive clause that functions as a noun. Tu poneru. Tu is the definite article, and poneru is the genitive form of a Greek adjective, poneros, which means wicked or evil or troublesome, among several other definitions in various contexts. But tu poneru, the adjective with the um, definite article becomes a substantive. It's a noun. And in a genitive case, it's of the wicked one, signifying a particular individual. Perhaps it could be claimed that it refers to Adam, but then the words would also have been true of Abel and Seth and all Seth's descendants. And the context here does not admit that claim. So how was Cain of the wicked one? Where do we see any other sinner described in that manner simply because they sinned? 
You'd have to show me. David, King David, killed the man. But Christ, the son of David, was never described as being of the wicked one. Why not? Weissman's, for Weissman's assertion to hold true, it must be evident throughout Scripture. His assertions are not evident throughout Scripture. So he is lying, where he next says, nothing physical or literal is meant as clearly as is clearly indicated in the preceding verses. And now he's going to cite verses 8, 9, and 10 of 1 John chapter 3, the same chapter. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. And that's not what it says, and we will get to that. But we've already explained that here at length. And then verse 9. Whoever, whosoever is born, the word born, right, of God does not commit sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, Weissman claims that's not physical or literal. That's what he's claiming. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. How about Cain's not doing righteousness proves that he was a bastard when we compare it to Paul's words and the fact that sin lieth at the door. How about that? Weissman's not even considering that. In regard to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, all men sin. He just said all men sin. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. All men sin. But John was not talking about sinners. As we explained earlier in this series where Weissman tried to use this same passage, in that epistle, John distinguished between mere sinners and those who create or author sin. And all Mainstream translations ignore that distinction. They all do. John actually used different words and phrases, and all the translations ignore it, except mine. 1 John 3.8 actually says, He who is creating sin is from of the devil, since the devil sins from the beginning. John is indeed speaking of the inherent nature of men, and verse 9 proves that, although Weissman conveniently forgot to explain the appearance of the word seed in that passage. He just ignored it. Where John wrote in verse 9, as the King James Version has it, whosoever is born, the word for childbirth, describing your birth, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. John is indeed explaining that all of the Adamic race will be pardoned for their sins in the end. Just as Paul described in Romans chapter 5, that the entire Adamic race will be forgiven of its sin in Christ. It is not that we do not sin. We all sin. The same Apostle John wrote in chapter 1 of this same epistle, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, meaning God, 
a liar and his word is not in us. The same apostle wrote in chapter 2 of this epistle, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here John cannot be saying that people who sin are of the devil. Weissman's full of shit. He should have better understood what John's saying here in context because you cannot force John to contradict himself. You can't interpret John's writing in a way that forces John to contradict himself in his same writing in another chapter in that same epistle. If you do, then your interpretation must be wrong because it cannot be presumed that John was contradicting himself and it cannot be presumed that an apostle of Christ was a hypocrite. John is saying that because of one's own inherent nature, that his seed remains in him because he was born of God, his sin would not be imputed to him in the end. As John had already said, he has been forgiven. Christ came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Christ forgave the lost sheep of the house of Israel their sins. He told his enemies that they would die in their sin because they're bastards. He didn't come to forgive them. Christ does not forgive bastards. So verse 9 describes inherent nature. His seed remains in him. Verse 8 is also describing inherent nature. Yet Weissman refuses to believe it. So he ignored the phrase in verse 9 where it says his seed remains in him as the reason why sin will not be imputed to him. Where it says his seed remains in him, that is absolutely physical and literal relating to being born. Just as literal as Christ telling his adversaries that they were Abraham's seed in John 8, 37, which Weissman himself insisted without realizing that descendants of Esau were also Abraham's seed, and that is the reason why Christ made that concession. It's that same um, parable, right? Uh, one of my favorites, that a good tree will produce good fruit and an evil tree, evil fruit. Oh, if right. you're white, you're always going to make white children, as long as your spouse is white. And if you're not white, it doesn't matter what you do. You're always going to have non-white descendants. You you cannot escape that fate. Exactly. And as whites are all forgiven, we, as you said many times, we should devote our life to doing good works and helping our kin all in uh, building up treasures in heaven. Exactly. And and that's I've been holding back on that one, right? I, I've been purposely not bringing up that one because that proves. <laughs> In conjunction with these other, par other parables and sayings of Christ, that proves beyond doubt that it's all about race. And, and that and a couple of other statements of Christ, which I, I, I put together in um, my essay, Scatterers and Gatherers, it's all in there. But that proves without a doubt that it's all about race. How could a man be an evil tree and never be able to produce good fruit? No matter what he did, 
So Christ describes these people that will say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and that and wonderful things in your name? And he tells them to hit the road because he didn't know them. Who does God not know? Who the hell does God not know? The same clowns that don't realize that will sit there and say, oh, God's omniscient. God knows everything. Well, who does God not know? The people that he refuses to be acknowledged, to acknowledge. The people he refuses to acknowledge because they are not his people. That's who he doesn't know. It's all about race. It's not about belief. Those people believed. Like James said, the devils know there's one God and they tremble. They have God consciousness. I, I heard um, a man that I otherwise like and respect actually stood in front of my face last year. And I just listened. I didn't say anything to him because I'm going to answer him on, on my time in my way. But I just listened because I wanted to hear what he really believed, right? And if I had tried to argue with him, I would not have had the opportunity to hear that. I did tell him in the end that I couldn't agree with him, but that's, I left it there and shook his hand and we parted ways because it was one o'clock in the morning in a hotel room lobby and I wasn't even staying at that hotel, right? So we're talking for like an hour in the hotel room and um, in the lobby and he told me all about how the other races have God consciousness. So that proves that they could be reconciled to God. And I'm just shaking my head. I couldn't believe this because it's very clear in scripture that demons and, and many people have God consciousness. But Christ told them, you're workers of iniquity. They believe Jesus doing miracles in his name and, and casting out demons. Well, well. That doesn't mean they're going to be accepted. It's not about belief. It's all about race. That's the whole parable of the kingdom. And you only have to look at their countries and cultures to see that, well, they don't put it into practice. If they truly believe that, then they would, you know, help and edify their own race and gradually build it up. And we would see all these other Christian nations, but we never, we never have ever. Well, well, right. I mean, if niggers could be Christians and really live in a Christian manner, then today Detroit would still be the mecca of culture and industry than it was, that it was before the niggers moved in and destroyed it from the 1950s. In, in the 1940s, Detroit was a, a wow. It, it was a future, city of the future, and, and all the blacks moved into Detroit in the 1950s, and began it began a decline to, to the point it's at today, where it is just a recreation of, of the slums of the Congo, and it produces hardly anything. Industries flee. They, they fled Detroit. In fact, I don't know if it's true right now, but a year ago, the last supermarkets in Detroit were closed because there was so much shoplifting and, and theft that none of them could keep their doors open. So Detroit didn't even have a supermarket. About 10 years ago, city houses in Detroit were going for, they were being sold for $1 by the city to whoever would buy it. And, and hopefully fix it up. And the Chinese were buying up Detroit because nobody else would live with the niggers. Okay.
that's a digression. Yeah, that's know. that's desperation, hoping that some whites will come and revitalize the civilization. Yeah, so they could actually get some tax money out of it. We'll move on to um that this last two paragraphs of this this page of Weissman's book. I, I think this is gonna put us somewhere on it's we're still going to be on page 33 maybe at the bottom i don't even know i lost track i'm sorry weissman's next paragraphs he hypothesizes he says when one is born of god he is imbued with the spirit of righteousness from god and thus led to do the will of god by doing the will of god one is a child of god or is of god but those involved in habitual sinning are the children of the devil who are said to be of the devil or of the wicked one preeminently sinful unrighteous men and also those imbued with the spirit of lying and murder are figuratively called children of the devil and he could only cite john 8:44 and this epistle, 1 John 3, 8, verses 8 and 10, and he's taking that from a dictionary of the Bible published by Westminster Press in Philadelphia in 1934 under, under the article Devil or the entry for devil. And of course, all of this is a lie because as we have said, there are countless sinful Israelites who were never called devils or children of the devil. However, the sinful Israelites did continue to be called children of God throughout the Old Testament, no matter how much they had sinned. These terms describing children of the devil or being of the wicked one were only used in contexts which could be connected to Cain or Esau. So why is that? It can only be because Weissman is being deceitful. He is a liar. And two seed line is true. Yeah. And then, you know, why did God even bother with all these promises to Abraham? I mean, it all came to nothing then if anybody can be converted to his seed. Uh, all those promises were just liars, essentially. And why even bother with the whole Israelite kingdom? I mean, it's all for nothing if everybody can just be a devil or a good person just depending on how they are. I mean, what's the point in all these racial and seed promises? Well, well right, exactly. In in the beginning, you had said that you have said several times, you pointed out that Weissman himself said that race matters. But here in his arguments, he's saying race doesn't matter. So which is it? Every man can be a sinner, but the children of God are always called the children of God and are never called devils even though they were sinners. David was a murderer. Here, Weissman's saying that David was a devil. Those imbued with the spirit of lying and murder are figuratively called children of the devil. David wasn't called a child of the devil. David was called a man after God's own heart, even after he murdered Uriah the Hittite to take his wife, which is like a double sin. Because he lusted after another man's wife. Yeah, it shows that we we can return, repent, and you know become a better person. That's all capable with the Adamic race, but not capable. The devils aren't capable of this. They will always just be inherently evil. And 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 that's why son. That that's why Paul explained that sons 
can be chastised and ultimately corrected where bastards cannot. How are devils not bastards and bastards not devils? Everywhere you look in scripture, you're going to find the same pattern. Nothing violates this pattern. That there are, in the Old Testament, there are the wicked who are destined for destruction, but they're not Israelites. The Israelites are always promised forgiveness, but they're not devils. The Israelites are never devils, even when they need forgiveness. Or even when they need to repent, they're never devils. We'd all be devils. But that's what Weissman wants to make us in the end, right? He wants to convince us that our flesh is the devil. Even though God created the flesh and called it good. God created man in the flesh and called it good. So how could it be bad? How could the flesh itself be inherently evil? Weissman confuses the flesh with the lusts of the flesh, which are two different things. The lust of the flesh can be used for good or evil. I mean, if you didn't lust, you would never get married and have children. I don't imagine a white man could get married and have children solely on a business agreement without desiring that woman, without having some sort of lust for that woman. Maybe wife. Yeah, it's all about that. having restraint and controlling yourself. Right. Well, ah. I don't know um, where Weissman's book goes from here. I think we're at the bottom of page 33, but I know there's like eight more pages in this chapter. And we're going through it like really slow, right? <laughs> I'm not complaining at all, but yeah. it, it's... Um, it gets weirder and weirder. Yeah, we're at the very bottom right now. We just finished page 33. Now we have... Um, Two, four, six, eight. Eight more pages to this chapter. It ends at 41. <laughs> so we're going to be here a little bit. Um, it, it'll probably take another two, three weeks just to finish this chapter. I don't know. I don't know how involved this is going to be. Sometimes we can just fly through a page. So his next, um, his next section compares these phrases, children of the devil, to children of wrath, children of light, children of the world, child of hell, children of disobedience, son of perdition. Well, well, guess what? He's right. They're all about the same, but they're not about the children of Israel. <laughs> so no. the children of Israel are called out of the world. The children of the devil are not called out of the world. The children of wrath are not called out of the world. Even though we can be the children of disobedience when we follow the world. That doesn't mean that the evil people from that bad tree can be God's children if they don't. Christ told them, get away from me. I never knew you. The scripture has to be interpreted in a way where every passage follows the same consistent paradigm. But Weissman's view of things, every passage conflicts with some other passage by the same writer or some other chapter by the same writer. And that, that's not how to interpret the scripture. That's not rightly dividing the word of truth. If you're forcing John chapter 3 to, to conflict with John chapters 1 and 2, there's a problem with your interpretation. Weissman's a liar, plain and simple. He's going to keep being a liar throughout his book, I'm sure. I don't expect anything else.
yeah, if you need massive explanations why this doesn't make sense with this, then there's something wrong. Well, well, right. He's definitely trying to use cunning to disprove two seat line. Exactly. In um, page 36, he, the, the subtitle, The Blood of Righteous Abel, that should be fun. He's going to deny that race means race. And, and he, he's probably going to claim that somehow the children of Seth can be responsible for the blood of Abel. I don't know how he's going to do that, but he's going to have to. But the children of Seth can't be held responsible for the blood of Abel. They can't possibly be. Only the children of Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel. So Weissman's going to lie again. I know he's going to lie again. I just don't know how until I sit down to prepare for that, for, to address that section. But he's going to lie again and again and again and again. This is fun. I, I mean, it needs to be done. <laughs> Nobody's answered Weissman's book yet. Not even Clifton. I, I mean, he made a couple of general, um, general, I don't want to call them presentations or essays, but he's addressed this general on general terms a few times. He did have a, um, there is a tape on Clifton's website, Clifton Emmerheiser debates Charles Weissman. I don't know if it's this book that he's addressing or not. I, I never went back and looked. I've never, I've honestly never had the chance to listen to the tape. I just don't. I, I don't listen to. I listened to it. it I... Can you comment on it? Yeah, it was just um, a short um, presentation. Um, I think it was a shortened down version of this book, which he did in a podium. Obviously, he wouldn't go through the entire book, but it was just like an hour also and then clifton went for it point by point and uh clifton called weissman a serpent <laughs> well well that's so it was this material though the these arguments that clifton was addressing i, I just remember clifton and Mahizer debates charles weissman and and i heard a snippet of it here and there and and talking i think in a conversation with clifton that we were having sitting face to face at his house a long time ago when I first got a copy of it and told him I wanted to post it on his website, and, and I did. But the, um, the method Clifton used was to take two tape recorders and to play Weissman on one tape recorder and stop the tape when he wanted to answer Weissman. And then, of course, the second tape recorder would pick up what was being spoken on the first tape recorder, right? Clifton actually had like six tape recorders in his house at one time. <laughs> and, and he would play it and record Weissman and then he'd stop it and he'd speak into the microphone and then he'd play some more and stop it and he'd speak into the microphone again. That, that's how Clifton did that. It's pretty, pretty crude compared to sitting here with audacity and splicing stuff together, right? <laughs> but it worked, I mean... <laughs> It it worked for him. Yeah, at he the went time. through each each lie one by one, and he, you know, just like we're doing, but obviously a shortened down version. And Weisman was trying to do how he was trying to pull, you know, ignore certain verses, only quote half a verse. Clifton saw through it all. Well, that's good. That I'm 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 glad Clifton did it, but that's the only thing that he he really did. That was one of the first things he did. I mean, he told me he did that. 
um, probably in the early 90s, probably even before he started his ministry, I think. I don't think I ever got an exact date. I have to find it on his website, and, and I'll probably try to do that today and put a link to it at, at the end of my notes for this podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Bill. Thanks. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all the evil devils out there. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Praise Christ and good night.